that time has come soon. Um, We're in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to be reading from uh, verse 32 uh, and into chapter 5. Uh, into chapter 5, and we're going to read a little further than the bulletin announces. So if you uh, would, uh, would you please uh, uh, rise? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, this is indeed your word, inspired and uh, uh, given to us uh, through Dr. Uh, Luke. And we thank you for his uh, research and the labor that he brought uh, to help us uh, to see such things that we uh, need. Allow us to see Jesus, we pray. Amen. Verse 32 of chapter 4, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles uh, were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came, And in they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that 
As Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. You may be seated. She dropped out of Stanford at the age of 19 to start her own company. She had a revolutionary idea and was widely thought to be a genius. People who knew her described her as a female Steve Jobs. She possessed a a testing process that could detect diseases like cancer and diabetes with just a few drops of blood. And venture capitalists, well, they viewed her company, Theranos, as the next Apple. And people wanted to get in on the ground floor. Not just wealthy people, but even ordinary uh, people to the tune of $9 billion. Employees at Elizabeth Holmes Theranos knew that the data that presumably showed that her testing device worked was falsified. Eventually, this came to light, and Elizabeth Holmes uh, was charged uh, with massive fraud. At the trial, prosecutors brought 30 witnesses to prove that, in fact, she knew that her Edison machine uh, did not work, that she was misleading people. But she never admitted to doing wrong, that she had misled. She wanted to seem to have a revolutionary new technology and to be one of the very few women in Silicon Valley that started a a major company with a new technology. To seem rather than to be. In our text... Luke lets us see once again into the life of the early church. And we're confronted with the importance of being what we appear to be. To be rather than to seem. And Luke uh, helps us see this as he contrasts uh, several rich people. uh, A man named Barnabas and a married couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And this story actually uh, shocks us. We may think, Well, this is not only unfortunate what happened, but it's actually kind of harsh. We wonder what it was that they did that God would strike them dead. Strike them dead without the opportunity to repent. Just how does Peter interpret their actions? And what are we to make of all of this? Well, Luke gives us another look into the life of the church, just as he did uh, in uh, Acts chapter 2. And we see that it is a generous community. It's a generous community. The church is hearing the powerful testimony of the apostles and experiencing great grace. And the gospel creates this united and generous community. The Holy Spirit's present in their lives and among them, and they have harmonious relationships. He describes it this way, the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. 
And because of this, he goes on to say, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So as a result, there was not a needy person among them. That's verse 34. This generosity was not a condition for membership in the church. It wasn't an ideology like communism where private ownership uh, was banned. No, it reflects the economic realities of the city. Now, when Nancy and I moved to Philadelphia, we moved into Mount Airy. And Mount Airy was divided by Germantown Avenue. And, and we were just, well, we were really surprised by the extremes. To the west of Germantown Avenue, you didn't have to go very far. And what you would see were buildings that were burned out, boarded up, and abandoned, as if there'd been a riot there. And then uh, five or six blocks uh, in the other direction, there were mansions that were centuries old. They uh, dated uh, uh, back to the time when people wanted to leave the swamp that was Philadelphia in the heat and the humidity and uh, the malaria that one could catch there. Jerusalem was something like that, a city of extremes, There was extravagant wealth for a few. Herod and his court, merchants, land owners, tax farmers like Matthew, uh, the priestly aristocracy. And alongside, there was enormous poverty for many. The location of Jerusalem itself was a factor in this. Jerusalem was located where it was. In fact, it really existed for religious reasons. It was a terrible location for commerce. It wasn't on a fertile plain. Uh, It wasn't located on an important trade route. There was no uh, major river or lake. It was remote. And with that came high costs of living. And there was also a high level of unemployment. And so many, many people were destitute there. And widows, Jewish widows, came from all over the empire because one of the tenets of Judaism, one of its pillars, was the practice of uh, giving alms uh, to the poor. And so these widows, who had no means of self-support, came there in the hopes that the generosity of their countrymen uh, would care uh, for them. And most of the employment there in Jerusalem was for day laborers. And like day laborers everywhere, it was a hand-to-mouth existence. So caring for the needs of another was not some kind of social experiment, but a practical expression of the unity of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, Their sharing arose from necessity and their understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. This phrase, no needy person, signals not only something about the inner life of the church, but also the church's relationship to Judaism. No needy persons is the ideal of the, in the Old Testament uh, for the people of God. And it's reflected in both the law and the prophets. And the, in the book of Leviticus, there's the year of Jubilee, 
which is meant uh, to place a floor uh, on people, a floor uh, to keep them from sinking deep into poverty with the forgiveness of debts uh, and the release of people who sold themselves uh, into an indented, uh, indentured servitude. Every seven years, the slate was wiped clean uh, for people. Deuteronomy 15 has several statements in it about this. In verse 4, it says, There will be no poor among you. Deuteronomy 15.7 puts it this way. Israel was not to harden their hearts or shut their hands against the poor. And one of the primary critiques that the prophets bring uh, to the state of society in their day is the failure to live this out. You can check this out in Isaiah chapter 1 and 58 or Micah 6. Such generosity is beautiful. It draws the attention of those outside the church. And there are many testimonies uh, from the first six centuries of the church as to just what a magnet, how distinctive this was, how contrasting this was to the Greco-Roman society. But if we look around in America, we have to say, well, this really isn't a widely shared mark of the American church. Oh, to be sure, there are some wonderfully generous people in the church, some of them of significant means and others of modest means who display great generosity to the poor. And I've seen it in the churches I serve. I've seen individuals like that. And actually in the poverty of graduate school, before we uh, went off, people were generous to us there as well while I was in seminary. Why is it so hard for American Christians to live out this expression of discipleship? Well, unlike the early church, Americans tend to see ourselves as owners and not stewards. The early church, the people in the early church saw themselves as stewards because they viewed that all they possessed was a gift from God. It was God's property, which he'd loaned them for a time and which he would require an accounting uh, for. And if we're going to grow in this, uh, we need to be asking from time to time, why and for what purpose has God given me this wealth? Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't enjoy it, nor does it mean we shouldn't plan responsibly for the future. But the New Testament's clear that we have a responsibility uh, to our extended family, especially our parents, to God's people, and then to outsiders, especially to the poor in those uh, categories. And there's another connection here that Luke wants us to see. It's the connection between verse 31 and 32 of chapter 4. And this is where sometimes the headings in our Bibles, they just hide the way the things are broken up. We don't see these uh, connections. wants us to see the connection between the filling of the Holy Spirit and the boldness that they had in verse 31 and their generosity. Well, what is that connection? Well, it's true that people hold on to their money because of greed and materialism. And materialism is, a, is an awful thing to believe, that your life is actually in the stuff that you own. 
that your life is that stuff. If you lose that stuff, you've lost your life. But there's another reason people hold on tightly to what we have, and it's because we are afraid. Michael uh, Lunig, uh, uh, an Australian writer, captures this in his prayer when he says, there are only two feelings, love and fear. There are only two languages, love and fear. There are only two activities, love and fear. There are only two motives, two procedures, two frameworks, two results, love and fear, love and fear. You see, when we're afraid, when we fear that the banks are going to collapse, the economy's going to tank, uh, that we're going to be unemployed, that our savings will be insufficient, our property won't hold its value, our tendency is to clutch our money really tightly. We close our fist. It's not always greediness. It's often fearfulness that prevents us from being generous. We need great grace. The early church was experiencing great grace. That's what freed them to be so generous. And the gospel frees us from living in economic fear because it shows us how gracious, generous God himself is. In the cross, we see the extravagant generosity of God. God's love will never fail us. After all, God the Father has given his Son for us. The Son has given himself uh, for us. And such giving means that nothing good will be withheld from us. He knows about your bills as he knows about mine. He knows about the national economy and your household budget. He knows the future and we do not. And he is faithful. Now Barnabas illustrates this. He illustrates this kind of generosity and he's contrasted with Ananias and his wife. The generous community is contrasted with this deceitful conspiracy. This deceitful conspiracy, well, it it surprises us because on the surface, Barnabas and Ananias do exactly the same thing. They're rich people who sell property and they bring the proceeds to the apostles for them to decide how to distribute it. But the experience they have and the results that they uh, encounter are very, very different. Luke tells us they kept back part of the proceeds. And Peter is given insight by the Holy Spirit uh, to this reality. He says, Ananias and Sapphira, you could have given only part of the money you've got, but you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, it's clear If you read this through a few times, it's really clear they weren't required to give the whole sum that they got in selling the property. And when this is exposed, Ananias is exposed, immediately he falls down dead. Three hours later, his wife comes in. She knows nothing about what's just transpired. Peter asks, was this the full sale amount? And she says, absolutely. She lies about it, and she too dies immediately. What's left unsaid is that they made out as if they had given the entire income from the sale to the apostles. 
This was premeditated. This is a conspiracy. What was the motivation for this? Well, they desired to seem to be generous without actually being generous. They wanted to seem as generous as other people like uh, Barnabas. They wanted to get the credit for this. They wanted to be honored as sacrificial uh, givers. They weren't motivated by the honor of God and a love uh, for the poor. They just wanted to benefit from the perception that they had uh, these things. Peter interprets this lie as a conflict between God and Satan. This is part of another example of Satan's hostility toward God, which extends all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden. It reaches its high point, its apex, when uh, Jesus begins his public uh, ministry. There the evil one uh, brings uh, Jesus out into the wilderness and tempts him to take a shortcut uh, to his kingship. But he fails. Jesus does not yield. And then Satan suffers a major defeat uh, as Jesus was put to death. He thought he triumphed in that moment, but in fact he had not. Jesus had turned the tables on him. And so now this conspiracy to lie is another attack on God, on God's plan to have a people for himself. And the seriousness of this is seen in God's exposing this and immediately bringing judgment on each of them. Now this seems really harsh to us. And if you read this and and, uh, you're not a Christian or you're new to Christianity, you may think, this is really, I don't know if I want anything to do with this. But you need to understand, left unchecked right here at the beginning of the church, when the church is in its infancy, this would have had devastating long-term consequences. It's like a serious childhood genetic disease like PKU. It's manageable if it's detected early. But if it's not detected early, and it's not managed, it has horrible developmental consequences. Remember, it's hypocrisy that throughout the centuries uh, uh, has hurt the work and witness of the church more than anything else. It's hypocrisy. It's still the most common criticism heard uh, about our lives, those of us who profess Christ. The more obvious sins like adultery, stealing, and murder are usually exposed. Uh, They're dealt with. They may be dealt with uh, uh, by the civil authorities, and the church usually responds as well in some way, uh, perhaps in the formal act of church uh, discipline. But hypocrisy is under the surface, and it can spread under the surface unseen. And This undermines the church's unity that rests on the integrity and transparency of its members. You can't have unity without integrity, without matching who you are on the outside with who you are on the inside, and transparency where there's a gap. Ananias and Sapphira, in their conspiracy, mock the unity that the Holy Spirit has created in those who believe in the gospel. Now, honestly, 
most American Christians see unity as something optional. It's desirable, it's nice to have, if you got it, but to expect it all the time in the church, well, that's being idealistic. But God doesn't think so. He takes threats to the unity of the church quite seriously. This story contains within it several lessons. Lessons that deserve uh, to not only be mentioned, but reflected on. What are they? Well, the first is this, that this temptation to seem rather than be is very powerful. It's very seductive. And all of us experience it. You see, we're tempted to hide those stubborn places in our lives where we stumble again and again. Those places where our resolution, our willpower has simply not brought about change. It's the habitual sins. It's the idols that capture us. It's the things we fall into again and again. Now, the reason we hide this is consciously because, well, we fear being known. We fear people will think less of us if they see our struggle, if we own it before them and admit it. However, God has made us such, and he's decided in his wisdom uh, that in order for deep life change to take place in us, there are things whether it's a struggle with sin or it's our immaturity in relationships or in our in emotional life and how we respond uh, to people that are not going to make progress. They're just places we aren't going to grow up and change in unless and until we invite other people in, until we ask them for their help, until we seek their prayers, till we Ask them, please ask how I'm doing uh, with this. Uh, Please uh, help uh, hold me accountable to do what I plan to do here. But there's another side to this, and it's our lack of self-knowledge, which is often combined with a lack of humility, which makes us resistant to seeing that we are not the people we'd like to think of ourselves as. People actually experience me differently than I imagine myself to be. I don't know if you've ever seen that about yourself. Of course, I only see it uh, in the rearview mirror. It's only after it's already transpired that I see the gap between how I imagine myself to be and how people actually experience uh, me. You see, we uh, are resistant to seeing that about ourselves. We want people to think well of ourselves. After all, we think well of ourselves. So shouldn't other people do that? And so we can settle uh, for seeming to be rather than actually being. We are actually people who need to be rescued from ourselves every day. We are sinners not only who get sinned against, but we sin against other people. And hypocrisy keeps us from seeing our ongoing, never-ending need of grace. The grace of conviction, the grace of repentance, the grace of forgiveness, the grace of restoration, the grace of being made whole. We'll never outgrow our need for these graces. 
We'll never arrive in any area. You see, what we do with the gap between what we know we should do and how we actually live has the power either to build up the church and lead to greater growth and actually the expansion of the gospel or has the power to undo all of those uh, things. And this is why this is especially hard for us to get, I think, is that we're so individualistic in the way we think about ourselves and about life that it's kind of, well, almost inconceivable that every action that we take that's a sin actually has a social impact. That even the things that are hidden, that no one seemingly knows about, actually affect other people around us. It's no wonder Jesus has some of the sharpest uh, words uh, to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They were the Puritans, the reformers, the people who were standing against the tide of the corruption of Hellenistic uh, culture, the defender of God. But he charges them as hypocrites and warns his own followers of the yeast of their teaching. You see, all of us need to recognize we have limited self-awareness, and we need people who will speak truthfully uh, to us. We need people who we can confess to, people who will hear us without judgment, people whom we can ask for help from. And small groups are one place where that can, that can flourish. And it can happen in an intentional discipleship relationship. All of us need people that challenge us uh, to go on. It can happen in a mentoring uh, relationship or in uh, deep spiritual friendships. Those are all effective places for this to happen. The second big takeaway here is this that we are an invisible war. Every time the church advances, every time some of the devil's turf is taken, every time the church boldly witnesses and people turn from idolatry to the living God, then there's pushback from the kingdom of darkness. When churches don't do those things, the kingdom of darkness doesn't need to be as concerned with us. But when the church is moving out, then there is pushback from the kingdom of darkness. The church is attacked. And we're in a section of the book of Acts where Luke catalogs these four primary ways that the evil one attacks the church. We saw one last week, intimidation. And we're seeing this one, hypocrisy. We'll see a couple more. These are his tried and true strategies. He's stuck with them for centuries because they still work. We we haven't wised up, and we need to wise up. And the main thing we need to realize is we are no match for him. Our church is no match for him. And so we must pray. This is what Paul says at the end of the letter, Ephesians. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of darkness. We need to keep alert and pray, not only that we won't be tempted, but that all of us uh, won't uh, be tempted. This last little piece I read to you is Luke's afterword. It's kind of a transition, but I want to reread it to you because it may not have stuck 
uh, in your memories here. Now, many signs and wonders, this is verse 12 of chapter 5, were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. There's three traits of a ch- that are here when the church is experiencing the power of the gospel and is filled with the Spirit and growing in grace. The first is this. Well, the church repels some people. You see, when word got around about Ananias and Sapphira and how they were struck dead, devout Jews immediately recognized that God was among them, that God was present, in the, in the Holy Spirit and these deeds. The God of the Old Testament was there and active. And they didn't want their secret sins exposed, much less to encounter the judgment that followed. So the church repelled. But it also attracted the people held the church in high esteem. And Churches that are full of the gospel and the spirit are highly respected by non-believers. Non-believers are attracted to the grace, the unity, the love, and the generosity of the poor. They're attracted to people who are authentic about their own need for grace and who desire personal transformation for themselves. These things we see here are attractive to people. This is authentic life. It's the kind of life people have only the slightest touches of uh, ordinarily, just hints of it and when it's abundant and it's just the normal course of things. Uh, when the church is together, well, it just draws people. You see, it's not always safe to come to church. And God may not be visible here, but he is present. And he sees all. And as a result of these things, the church grows. You would think with the repelling and the attracting, the repelling would keep it from growing. But no, more and more, exceedingly more people respond to the gospel. We are warned in the New Testament about the consequences of unconfessed, uh, uh, unforsaken sin. In 1 Peter, husbands are warned about their harsh and domineering treatment of their wives. God uh, will deal with them by not answering their prayers. In 1 Corinthians, we are warned about the manner and attitude and mindset we bring when we come to the Lord's uh, table. In Revelation, uh, in the letters to the seven churches, uh, they are warned about their spiritual coldness in spite of their orthodoxy and good deeds or their trusting in their material resources as well as blatant immorality and heresy. If not repented of, Jesus will make them no longer churches. That Christ is among us should sober us, but it also should encourage us. The generosity that among the early church mirrors the self-giving that we see in the cross and is seen in this table. But more than that, we have in Jesus a merciful high priest who's drawn to us in our weakness. 
He's drawn to us in our struggle. He's drawn to us uh, when we find ourselves mired in sin. And he comes to us with gentleness, not harshness. He comes to us with gentleness to bear us up, to bind up our wounds, to give us uh, hope and new strength. It's hard to believe this almost. That he's drawn to us. His heart is outgoing to us when we are at our worst. And when we turn to him in those moments, we've taken the most important step we can to keep from falling into the trap of hypocrisy. It's in this way, coming and tasting the mercy of his heart, that we're enabled to be rather than to seem. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you're among us. Oh Lord, take what we've heard today and stir in us a deep longing to draw near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Free us uh, from our hypocrisy, from our lack of self-awareness, our wanting to hide. Father, take us today, each of us, one step further into the life that you'd have for us individually and into the life that we see in the early church as a church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.